Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to this episode on the anointing of the sick. Before we get underway, I just want to say a quick, I mean, first of all, thank you to the people who've been listening to this podcast and sharing it with others. And then secondly, if this podcast is helping you and you're enjoying it, one thing that you can do that is really helpful is to subscribe or to rate it or to leave a review on whatever app you're using. Because the more people do that, the more those apps then recommend this podcast to other people. And that's how we can expose like total randoms on the other side of the world to the teachings of the Catholic Church. How cool is that? So get amongst it. Now to the episode. So... The anointing of the sick and confession are grouped together in the catechism under the heading of sacraments of healing. And that kind of makes sense, right? That we would have confession, which is about healing the wounds of the soul, so sin. And then we have the anointing of the sick, which is about healing for people who are physically ill. So the anointing of the sick is for people who are experiencing a serious illness or who are elderly. And the point of the sacrament, which is summarized in point 1499 of the Catechism, is to commend those who are ill to the suffering and glorified Lord that he may raise them up and save them. Okay, so the point of the sacrament is that the sick may be saved. It's a sacrament of healing. But what does that mean? What does it mean for a sick person to be saved or healed? Because often when we talk about healing, what we're thinking of is someone being physically cured or recovering from their illness. And it makes sense that we would think that because that's what Jesus basically spent his whole ministry doing on earth. He went around curing people of their illnesses, among other things. And knowing that, we can start to think, oh, well, that's what healing is, right? Healing is being cured, and that's what I should expect to receive if I approach our Lord with enough faith or if I pray hard enough. And of course, physical healing is a good thing, and we should pray for it, and God may provide it. But sometimes we treat it like it's the only or the most important thing that God could do for us. And then we might start to think that if I'm not physically healed, then something has gone wrong, like my prayers haven't worked. So I remember as a little kid, sometimes they would have a healing mass at the local parish and we'd go and I would see all of these people filing up to the front, receiving the anointing of the sick. And then they'd all go back to their pews and they sort of looked the same, like nothing had changed. And I'd look at that and I'd think, oh, well, that didn't work. (laughs) You know, I was like, well, the sacrament was kind of ineffective for whatever reason. Like maybe those people didn't have enough faith or maybe they didn't pray hard enough. And that kind of thinking arises out of a misunderstanding of what the point of healing actually is. When we look at the Gospels and we look at the way that Jesus interacts with the sick, we see that Jesus' priorities are a little bit different to ours when it comes to illness and suffering. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. This is that famous incident where a paralytic is brought to Jesus on a stretcher. And because his friends can't get him through the crowd, they literally tear a chunk off the roof and lower him down to Jesus. And it says this, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And then the Pharisees start sort of grumbling and getting all like hot under the collar because, you know, how can Jesus forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And it's only at this point that Jesus then says, okay, well, in order to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man stands up, takes his mat and leaves. Now, let's think about the sequence of events in this scene. The first thing Christ says when he sees this man is, son, your sins are forgiven. And at first glance, that is kind of a weird thing for our Lord to say. Like, that's not why his friends have brought him here. They've brought him here to have him cured. So why does Christ say your sins are forgiven? Well, let's think of it like this. Imagine if someone you really loved came to you and their pants were on fire. Okay. But they also happen to have just stubbed their toe. Now, you wouldn't look at that friend and say, okay, we're going to deal with the fact that your pants are on fire in a minute. But first of all, let me go and get an ice pack for that toe. No, that would be ridiculous. That would be the response of a lunatic or a psychopath. If you love someone and you see them suffering, the first thing you do is you address their most urgent need. So when Christ first sees this man whom he calls son, like he loves him, he immediately addresses his most urgent need, which is his soul, his need for mercy. And you might have seen the scene from The Chosen that's based on this moment in the Gospels. And if you haven't, I recommend that you go watch it. You can actually just find just that clip on YouTube. And it is so beautiful. I mean, I am literally like, I'm such a sucker for things like that, like tug on the heartstrings, especially when it's about God. I've watched that scene like a bajillion times. And every time I'm like wiping my eyes, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> but what I love about that scene is the look on the guy's face when our Lord says to him, your sins are forgiven. And you can see on his face this expression of like total relief. It's like God has just gotten right to the heart of his pain. And then the physical healing on top of that, it's kind of like this cherry on the cake. So there's another scene in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, when Jesus heals the man who's been lying by this pool sick for 38 years. And the man is obviously overjoyed, but he kind of loses Jesus in the crowd after the healing. And then later on, it says, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. First of all, I love the image of our Lord looking for this guy in the temple, seeking him out. Because, you know, our Lord doesn't just wave a magic wand over people and heal them and then kind of go on his merry way and forget about them. It's not just an anonymous magic trick. Jesus loves each person that he comes into contact with. So he seeks this guy out because he has something really important to say to him that he didn't get to say because they got separated. And his message is this. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, what could be worse than being homeless and alone and crippled by an illness, lying beside a pool of water in your own filth with no one to help you for 38 years? <laughs> in other words, what could be worse than the worst physical suffering? And of course, the answer to that is spiritual suffering, spiritual death even as a result of sin. Now, in both of these gospel scenes and in many other moments in the gospel, we see the priorities of Christ. We see what he really ultimately wants for us. And what he ultimately wants isn't necessarily our physical health. I mean, of course, he does want that, but it's not his ultimate aim. 
What he truly wants is our salvation. Not just that, our sanctification. He wants us to be saints. He wants us to be eternally happy with him in heaven. And he will do whatever it takes to help us achieve that aim, even if it means allowing us to suffer physically or mentally on this earth. So C.S. Lewis talks about in The Problem of Pain, and by the way, I'm going to be quoting this book a lot in this episode because C.S. Lewis is basically like the Yoda of suffering. (laughs) Like this book is so wise and everyone, I I was tempted to just like read this book to everyone instead of doing an episode on the anointing of the sick. But anyway, go read the book. C.S. Lewis talks about how parents do this all the time because they love their children, right? So they will allow them to suffer at times and even suffer greatly if it means that they will ultimately be better and happier people for it. I love the way that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI puts it. He says, you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. And that path to greatness inevitably involves suffering, and it may well involve illness. And this is something that the Catechism talks about in point 1500. It talks about the ways that illness can help us to heaven. It says, in illness, man experiences his powerlessness, his limitations, his finitude. Every illness can make us glimpse death. It can also make a person more mature. Very often, illness provokes a search for God and a return to him. C.S. Lewis kind of echoes this sentiment when he says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So suffering and sickness, it's like being shaken awake by God. It's like him saying, hey, look up, you know, this isn't home. Your home is somewhere else. And of course, we are free human beings. We can make the choice to reject suffering and to reject God because we're suffering. It's not like if we get sick, there's some sort of guarantee that we'll be a saint. But it is something that we see over and over again that suffering has the power to transform us. I think I've mentioned before my favorite YouTube channel, which is called Special Books by Special Kids or SBSK in which this guy goes around interviewing people with various diagnoses. And you see the depth and the maturity and the strength of people who are experiencing incredible suffering. So I'll include some links to some of my favorite SBSK episodes in the show notes for anyone who needs additional proof of the power of suffering to transform us. Now, of course, all of this doesn't mean that God never physically heals anyone. He doesn't want us to ever experience comfort or pleasure or joy. Of course, course he does. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, when a guy with leprosy says to Jesus, if you want to, you can cure me. And Jesus says, of course I want to be cured. So of course God wants that for us, but his first priority is our salvation. So when it comes to the anointing of the sick, the grace of this sacrament is aimed first and foremost at preparing our souls for heaven. So the catechism in point 1532 describes the five key effects that this sacrament has on our souls. The first is that it unites the sick person to the passion of Christ for their own good and that of the whole church. And this can be such a great consolation when we're ill, because one of the things that can really get us down when we're sick or we're suffering, especially if we've been suffering for a long time, 
is that we can feel isolated, right? Like I'm just here in my bedroom suffering and the rest of the world is out sort of, you know, living their lives. But in this sacrament, the bond between us and Christ on the cross and the rest of the church is strengthened. And we are reminded that we're not alone, that not only is our suffering helping others, we are also being supported by all of those other members of the church who are suffering. It's like someone reaching out and holding your hand in the dark. You know, you're not alone. The second effect of the sacrament is strengthening peace and courage to endure in a Christian manner the sufferings of illness or old age. So in other words, this sacrament helps us to cope with the mental and spiritual pain that often comes with physical suffering. And C.S. Lewis talks about how psychological suffering is often harder to bear than physical pain. He says, it is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. And if you've ever experienced a physical illness, you might know this, that the hardest thing to deal with is often that mental and spiritual fatigue and depression that can come with being seriously ill. So in this sacrament, it's like, you know, Jesus, yes, he allows us to go through that physical suffering, but he does everything that he can to alleviate and lessen those things that are the hardest to bear. He gives us the courage and the peace and the strength to cope with our suffering. The third effect of the sacrament is the forgiveness of sins. So, I mean, you should be in a state of grace to receive the anointing of the sick. And if you're not, you should go to confession first. The anointing of the sick doesn't replace confession, but it does wipe away all venial sins. And if you haven't been able to go to confession, then any mortal sins that you are truly sorry for will also be forgiven through the sacrament. So in the faith explained, it gives the example of, say, someone who's fallen into a coma before they can go to confession. So in that instance, the anointing of the sick would be enough to cleanse them of any mortal sins that they're sorry for. And this is something that the church gets from the New Testament, right, from the letter of St. James, when it talks about how our sins are forgiven in the anointing of the sick. The fourth effect of this sacrament is the restoration of health if it is conducive to the salvation of our soul. And I know that we have spent all this time talking about how God's number one priority isn't our physical health, but we shouldn't also brush over this as an effect of the sacrament. If it's God's will, if he wants us to be physically healed, then this sacrament has the power to bring about that healing. So if we're receiving the anointing of the sick, we should approach it with that trust and that attitude that if it is God's will, he can heal us. And then the final effect of the sacrament is the preparation for passing over to eternal life. So the faith explained makes the point that the anointing of the sick, if we are properly disposed to it, can cleanse us of all remains of sin. And it goes on to say, if we are so blessed as to receive the sacrament of the anointing of the sick in our last illness, we may have every confidence that we shall enter into the happiness of heaven immediately after death. So this sacrament is not just something nice and symbolic. It can be the difference between purgatory and going straight to heaven if we're properly open to it. So we should never delay for a second if we think that someone needs to be anointed. We should send for the priest immediately. And we also shouldn't be held back by a fear that we might be wasting or misusing the sacrament if we ask for it you know, too early or too often. Because one of the things that the Catechism talks about is that you can receive this sacrament as many times as you need to. It's not one of those ones that, you know, you can only receive once. So point 1515 of the Catechism talks about how if you're sick and you receive the anointing and then you get better and then you get sick again, 
you can receive the sacrament again. Or even during the same illness, if your condition becomes more serious, you can receive the sacrament again. Or if you're an older person and you begin to feel the increasing effects of old age, you can receive the sacrament again. So it's one of those ones we can really just take advantage of whenever we need it. So who might need the anointing of the sick? Well, the Vatican II document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, point number 73, says the anointing is not a sacrament for those only who are at the point of death. As soon as one of the faithful begins to be in danger of death from sickness or old age, the fitting time for him to receive the sacrament has already arrived. Okay, so anyone who is in any danger of death through sickness or age should receive the sacrament. And the catechism even suggests that if someone is about to have a serious operation, they should receive it. And actually, fun fact, this is from The Faith Explained, in around the 12th century, the church started referring to the sacrament as extreme unction, which means the last anointing. And what it meant, like the last anointing just meant that it was the final of the four anointings that you can receive as a Christian. So baptism, confirmation, holy orders, and anointing of the sick. But people thought that it meant that it was like the last thing that happened before you died. So all of these people were holding off from receiving the anointing of the sick because they were like, well, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> they thought that they didn't need it. And they were missing out on all of the graces of the sacrament. So that's why the church eventually went back to using the term the anointing of the sick, just to make it super duper clear that you should receive it as soon as you need it. You do not have to be on death's doorstep. Now, this doesn't mean that we should just receive the sacrament whenever it's available. No, if we are in good health or if we've just got like a bit of a sniffle or something and we don't need to be anointed, we should refrain from receiving the sacrament. So a situation like this might arise if, for instance, there is a healing mass in your parish and the anointing of the sick is offered. In a moment like that, we might see lots of people going up to receive the anointing and we might think, oh, well, I mean, I guess we're all going up. I might as well join in. But actually, if we're not sick or elderly, then we shouldn't. And the reason for this is, as we've said in earlier episodes, in the sacraments, we don't just receive like generic random graces from God. The sacraments are channels of specific graces aimed at helping us in specific ways. So if we don't need those particular graces, then receiving the sacrament isn't really going to do anything. It's like when a little kid gets a Band-Aid and they don't really need one. When my little sister was a baby, we had these Band-Aids and they had the wiggles on them. They were extremely cool Band-Aids in her defense, and she loved them. And so every so often she would go up to my dad and like hold out her finger and be like, I need a band-aid <laughs> and the dad would be like nah. I mean I can't really see anything there are you sure you've hurt yourself and she'd be like yes I bumped my finger give me a band-aid and then dad would give her a band-aid and she'd like parade it around the house and the thing that she was demonstrating in those moments is that as soon as you put a band-aid on and you don't need one it stops being an instrument of healing and it becomes an accessory it becomes something kind of nice and symbolic but meaningless and useless and that's fine if it's just a Band-Aid on a two-year-old. But when it comes to the sacraments, we never want to treat God's grace like an accessory or something nice but meaningless. Okay, so what actually happens in the anointing of the sick? Well, the earliest description that we have of this sacrament is, as I've already mentioned, in the letter of St. James in the New Testament, chapter 5. It says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders or presbyters of the church, and let them pray over him, 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. So this quote tells us a couple of things about the anointing of the sick. First of all, it tells us that the person who administers the sacrament is the presbyter, so the priest or the bishop. So this isn't a sacrament that can just be administered by anyone. Having said that, this chapter then goes on to say, pray for one another that you may be healed. And the catechism picks up on this and tells us that the whole ecclesial community is invited to surround the sick in a special way through their prayers and fraternal attention. So we all, as members of the church, have a role in this healing process, even if we're not the ones administering the sacrament. So when we're at Mass and they're doing the anointing of the sick, I mean, it's really easy for that moment to become like a bit of a zone out moment where you kind of sit there and think about what you're going to have for lunch while everyone else gets the anointing of the sick. But actually, that's a really great opportunity for us to sit and pray for the people who are receiving the sacrament. The second thing that this quote tells us is that the actual essential rite of the sacrament involves the priest praying over the person and then anointing them with oil. So this is where we come to the matter and form of the sacrament. The matter is the priest praying over the sick person and then anointing them with oil, first on the forehead and then on the hands. And then the form of the sacrament, so the words that are spoken, are, through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Then the person, if they're able to, responds, Amen. And then the priest anoints the person's hands and says, may the Lord who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. And again, the person responds, amen. Now, the anointing of the sick doesn't need to take place in a church. It can be done anywhere, in a home or a nursing home or in a hospital. But the catechism points out in point 1517 that it is fitting for it to occur within the context of the mass, if possible. And I was actually thinking about this literally the other day I was at mass and they did the anointing of the sick. And it occurred to me that the anointing occurs right before the offertory, which it makes so much sense, right? That during this one perfect act of prayer that the whole church participates in, right at that moment when we're all meant to be bringing our sufferings and our concerns and prayers to the altar, that's when we anoint the sick and we commend them to our Lord. So the catechism in point 1517 also says that if circumstances suggest it, the celebration of the sacrament can be preceded by the sacrament of penance or confession and followed by the sacrament of the Eucharist. So this is what we refer to as the last rites, which is the combination of those three sacraments celebrated together. So the last rites is not the same as the anointing of the sick. And that's important because people often get the two confused. The last rites occurs when a person is imminently dying. So they're on their deathbed. And the focus in that moment is solely on preparing that person for their entry into heaven. So that's why it includes confession and the Eucharist. It's like you're loading the person up with all the possible graces they might need for that moment when their soul leaves their body. The anointing of the sick, on the other hand, can occur outside of the context of those other two sacraments when a person is in danger of dying. So they might be a while off it yet. So the focus there is on healing, first and foremost, spiritual healing, and then potentially bodily healing as well. Okay, so 
that's it for the anointing of the sick. In the next episode, we're going to talk about holy orders. So the ordination of priests and bishops. Such fun. Can't wait. Have an excellent fortnight and I will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.